They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Admit I was a clone to be messing around, but that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Thank you, Brad. If you'd like to try and give you a, a glimpse examples of the industry, the running community, and I, I heard about Mike in a Runners World article that I was just fascinated by, and it's probably fair and accurate to say that not only has he had one of the the most colourful and varied careers as such in the running industry but is also also have the biggest private collection of running memorabilia so to come and talk about it on the podcast please welcome the wonderful mike finelli how you doing mike hey thanks thanks for having me on i really appreciate it i'm honored if you were to give an introduction about yourself what would you have said um do you want my version or my wife's version <laughs> <laughs> both actually if they're, if they're radically different they differ dramatically <clears throat> um well i've been very fortunate to be involved in the sport and following the sport since a very young uh kid i i really got into the into the sport in the in the early 60s uh, mid 60s excuse me mm. uh, shortly prior to the 1968 olympic games uh and then watching those mexico city uh, Olympic Games on the black and white telly, and I was like, oh boy, just I was hooked, and uh, you know, it's uh, been downhill ever since. <laughs> so, uh, which, my I'm trying to remember started, that, that was Bob Beeman, wasn't it? The um, one more time, that was Bob Beeman, wasn't it? When he he said, oh, yeah, the, the, almost the, the yeah, record, that, the, that, the, that among the many other things, the uh, the black fist, uh, 100 meters, uh, 200 meters, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, uh, Lee Evans in a world record in the 400. We go on and on and on. That was uh, arguably the most remarkable Olympic Games uh, beyond compare. Although I sure did like those London Games, by the way. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to. The London Games, the dirtiest games in history, the biggest drug taking. Which, um, while we're proud of our games, probably not that aspect of it. So, um, yeah, but when, what about when that 800? You... Yes, that is true. Yeah, that was incredible. Yeah, and um, well, uh, 800s have always been quite a good distance for the Brits, it seems. Um, you know, Kelly Holmes and and Cohen Abet and the like. Um, because were you was it middle distance back then that was exciting to you or were you the sprints? I'm I'm sorry, uh, we broke up a little bit, uh, so I apologize. I didn't quite get your question. Oh, yeah, um, so apologies. It might be the answer I might say actually. Um, yeah. So when you when you in those in those games, were you drawn to? middle distance and, and, and distance running at that stage or were you more like most children kind of drawn to the sprints um you know i hadn't really started my own running career yet and uh so i was idolizing guys like uh like the sprinters like tommy smith in particular was kind of my favorite and probably to this day still is my favorite right but uh uh i found uh, out uh shortly thereafter when i began my own competitive running career uh, i wasn't quite cut out for the 200. <laughs> 
and uh, and I ended up becoming a middle and long distance runner, and uh, you know, competed, uh, started competing in uh, 1970, and I've had the good fortune of continuing to compete today at a much more advanced age than that. Wow, which is I mean, we've, we've to, um, some very young athletes who've spoken to uh, Gene Dykes, who is competing now, age 70, he's done a, a 251 marathon. But he, he talks about the fact that long, he, he's good because he hasn't had that longevity. He came into the sport late. I mean, are you, do you find there are many others like yourself who are still in the game or have you been quite rare? No, I think it's a kind of it, it's a rarity. I mean, you know, there's you know, it's a function of gravity. You know, your body can only is really really uh, set up to take so much pounding. Um, mm. I've now covered uh, almost 114,000 miles, which don't ask me what that is in kilometers, but I'm, I think I'm getting close to 200,000. Uh, but uh, and oh, anyway, miles as well. Uh, now that's fine. <laughs> uh, it's you know so. Um, the, the body really isn't set up to, to in, in, endure that necessarily. It takes an awful lot of uh, uh, luck and uh, g genetics and a lot of a lot a lot of uh, ancillary work uh, to still be able to run. Uh, so it's the guys like uh, like Gene that you mentioned, who is a mm. extraordinary runner, obviously very very gifted runner, talented runner. But he didn't, um, you know, he didn't tap his potential at an earlier age. Maybe he would have been even greater. But then again, he probably wouldn't be still running at the level he is today. You know, that's uh, we call them uh, those guys. You know, they have fresh legs, <laughs> relatively speaking. <laughs> so most of the guys that I trained <laughs> with, uh, and we pounded out. The, most of the guys that I pounded out the miles with in the 70s and the 80s are, are no longer no longer running. Uh, you know, um, lots of hips and backs and knees and excuses and mm. complaints and, you know, but, uh, you know, it, it, it really takes a lot of willpower, focus, concentration, discipline, and again, ancillary work in order to be able to still be, you know, uh, able to run competitively. What, what, you, what is your ancillary work? Is it strength training, kind of stretching, yoga, cross training? What? Oh, so uh, for me at this age, first of all, I do a lot of supplementation. I take, you know, all of the, the kinds of things that help repair tendons and tissues and, you know, keep bones strong, whether it be glucosamine and, you know, uh, collagen with uh, uh, hyaluronic acid and uh, all of those sorts of things and do it really religiously mm -hmm. and regularly and have a routine. Routine is really important. Uh I do so many other things, uh, stretching. I get uh, deep tissue body work uh, on a on a weekly basis and have for years, for years. And mm -hmm. I rarely miss a week of doing that. Hydration is key. Hydration, hydration, uh, keeping your weight down, you know. So nutrition, uh, I take a hot Epsom salt bath every single night, you know, with three pounds of Epsom salt, uh, rubbing, the, <laughs> the, rubbing it into all the different hours. And I've got a lot of hours. So there's a lot of those sorts of things. I, I do uh, uh, I do ice chambers. I do icing. As we speak, I'm sitting on an ice pack. Uh, I strain my <laughs> rather I am. I'm sitting on an ice pack. I use lasers. I've got a handheld electro stim machine. So I'm that guy that does like all the stuff. And, you know, candidly, um, from a, an exercise physiological perspective, you know, all of the fitness takes place in between the workouts anyway, right? So um, so if you concentrate, especially at this age, 
on the recovery from each and every session that enables you to, to do the next session. Mm. And, you know, you string enough of them together and, and there you go. Uh, so uh, in a nutshell. <laughs> um, and what's your motivation now? Are you still driven by the same um, the same desire as, as always or has that changed? Yeah, no, I, you know, I will tell you, you know, um, I was very driven to, to tap uh, into the, the, you know, maximize my potential as a younger athlete. I wasn't the most mm. gifted athlete, uh, so, but I did believe that, uh, you know, you, you know, talent can be um, uh, usurped with uh, hard work. And so we just tried to, you know, just outwork everybody, that sort of a thing. We didn't have much of an understanding of mm. exercise physiology. We're just blue collar go out and bang it out, you know, type of guys, you know, you banged it out until you got broken and then you banged it out some more and then you broke it and just, you know, continuing that. Uh, today, it's just really cool to still be fit and, you know, be able to get on the starting line. It's exciting. Uh, goals have changed, you know, obviously times are, are irrelevant, but we do have, uh, we, we put in here in the U.S., we have uh, standards that are called the All-American Standards. So they're benchmarks that are uh, by age. Mm. And so, Achieve, achieving that is, you know, they're, they're challenging. They always sound when you're a, an age group away, they don't, they don't look that stiff. And then you, you're a couple of years later and say, Oh, wow. <laughs> this is real. But at any rate, so the, those sorts of things. And for me, uh, a goal, a more imminent goal, I ran my very first marathon in 1972. Uh, so this year makes 50 years since my first marathon. Um, uh, I'll be 66 in just a couple of weeks here. And uh, I intend to run uh, run the marathon uh, 50 years after my first one, which is a you know a half a century later. You know most most of us can't run a marathon 20 years or 30 years after our first. So so that that's a rare a rare air club to do do that. And it'll also and we, mean that were you run, wise enough? Pardon yeah, me? Were you wise enough to have a horrific? Were you wise enough to have a horrific first marathon time so you can still potentially? Yes, absolutely. Or... I didn't finish my first one at age 15. At age 16, <laughs> I was full of bluster, and of course, I went out like you know a banshee and and died a horrible death. Uh, uh, and ran three hours and 36 minutes as a 16-year-old. But I eventually improved that three hours and 36 minutes to two hours and 25 minutes. And so that really speaks to the adaptability of the body and that, you know, that, that you know, training and a little bit of science and hard work and time and, you know, you know, pays off. <laughs> and, and you mentioned about the, the American times for um, different age brackets. If you hit that time, what does that lead on to something else or is it more for a, a mark of respect? No, it's it's just it's just kind of benchmarking, uh, you know, you. You know, you can apply and get an all-American certificate. I couldn't really care less about that sort of a thing. It's just, uh, you know, there is a, <laughs> there's rankings. Um, there's the international uh, ranking system, which is really neat uh, because you get mm. to see where you stand in the world. And when you're running th on the track, you know, the, the, the track is, you know, is, is black and white. You know, thing, things that do not lie, the stopwatch and the track. And so being able to compete on the track and compare your times to, the rest of the people in your age group and then locally, nationally, internationally is really, really cool, uh, which leads us to uh, the every two years we have the World Masters Track and Field Championships, which I'm really, you know, that's my set, my beagle after this marathon is to be able to compete in the mm -hmm. World Championships, the Masters Championships uh, at age 70. And what is your chosen distance now? <laughs> 
I'm really, you know, I'm, this is where my wife's opinion comes in. Uh, I'm uh, intending to run a, a double, uh, an 800 meters, 10,000 meter double, 800, 10,000. <laughs> okay. And, you know, uh, I, it's no double. I, I, I was a, in, collegiately, I was a 10,000 meter runner. You know, that's really kind of more my, my deal, but I love the 800. You know, I'm not an 800 runner. I have no business mm. in the world running the 800, but it is so exciting, you know? And so you ask what keeps you going, you know? Well, getting on the starting line of an 800 meters, you know, and having that gun go off and you're in lanes through the first turn and that everybody's breaking for the pull, I can't even mm. tell you. It's like, whoa, it is. And, and knowing and just knowing that you're going to die at some point in time, at some point, you're going to find yourself running through quicksand. It's just a matter of, is it with 200 to go? Is it with 180 to go? Is it with 90 to go? You know, and, I mean, it's inevitable, right? So it's such an extraordinary event. So uh, because I can, I shall. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, in, in your age bracket, are the elbows quite as sharp as, as when people were younger? Is there as much aggression towards other runners during the race or... Do you think that's changed slightly? No, I think it's just, I think, you know, just all of us uh, runners, I think we, we all, um, you know, while we have slowed down like uh, a lot, physically speaking, what goes on between the ears doesn't change. You know, you're, you've got that same, you know, you know, drive and that same, you know, uh, aggression and all of that that you, you know, that doesn't go away. That, that's, that, that, that continues with you. It's just that, you know, the body and the mind just don't necessarily jive. <laughs> <laughs> so um, linking to your your collecting then, when when did you kind of transition from, well, not transition from, but when did you, a runner, and also being, I guess, a collector slash fan? Um, you know, it, it, it started innocently enough. Uh, the uh, first piece I collected was uh, March 3rd of 1969. Um, I, again, I had just watched those Mexico City Olympic Games. And you remember those games, they happened very late in the year. They were, mm. uh, they were October games, um, and, uh, which is qu quite late for an Olympic Games. Uh, and uh, shortly thereafter, just a couple months thereafter, the Indoor National Championships for the United States, the AAU National Indoors, were held in my uh, hometown. I grew up in uh, Philadelphia on the East Coast, and uh, I was a 12-year-old. Having watched the Olympic Games on TV, my dad took me to the meet. Uh, I went running around chasing down anybody who had that, you know, distinctive navy blue uh, <laughs> USA team uniform with red and blue piping on it. I, I didn't know who they were necessarily, but I chased down <laughs> their autograph on my meet program. And uh, it was it was just an extraordinary event. So that was the first thing I ever collected was the, you know, was that meat program, which I had, you know, a million autographs like little kids like to get. Uh, and uh, from there, just kind of, you know, I'd pick up a piece here, pick up a piece there. There was no eBay. You know, you were going to, I would pick up things that, you know, swap meats or auction houses or, you know, used bookstores, that sort of a thing. Um, it didn't really turn into a, a, a bona fide collection for, you know, probably until about 40 years ago. And then I was just kind of collecting odds and ends. But about uh, about 35 or 30 years ago, I started realizing that it should have some rhyme and reason. And I started, you know, uh, trying to put the pieces of what I had together and put them in a chronological order. 
And then I realized what the gaps were and started filling in those gaps so that we can have a, you know, be able to document the sport uh, from the late 1800s all the way through. I generally stopped the collecting at around mid 1980s. I, I found the sport kind of got very disinteresting, particularly during the 90s. Uh, and that doesn't seem old to me. But I guess mm. 1980 nowadays is actually older than it sounds like. right? <laughs> uh, but at any rate, so uh, I've collected uh, that uh, nationally and internationally. Some pretty cool uh, uh, items uh, that uh, uh, I've amassed. But the neat thing is you can walk into the track and field garage, as I reference it, and uh, walk through the chronology of the sport and the history of the sport, you know, and uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, and and it, I use this, the the collection. It, it's not a showpiece. It's not a museum. It, I don't generally show it to folks. It's not, you know, something, uh, you know, to, to look at. It's more of an archives, uh, more of a library. And I use the mm. library to uh, for cultural storytelling of the history of the sport. Ah, okay. So going back to then that you mentioned the first one where you, you kind of got the signatures and um, like what what was it in those first few ones you collected that the feeling that you were you're craving? Uh, the the origin of the collection wasn't really you know it wasn't my focus you know my focus was mm. becoming an athlete you know and and it just was an adjunct just you know it's part of a lifestyle right you know you you know you are you are a runner and anything and everything that that means and involves and that was just one thing that kind of came with you know being a fan of the sport you know following the sport understanding it you know watching it watching the the watching the you know the the pros run and that sort of thing and you know um yeah so it just kind of evolved from there and um when you because you've you've now got well a, a huge number of of years. Um, what would you say? You mentioned like the eighties and the nineties. You started to lose interest. What was it about those decades that you you didn't find as appealing? Well, part of it is it's just not old enough, you know. Uh, by you know, comparatively speaking, I was more interested in the background. I mean, the thing about the eighties uh, and nineties is that stuff's on the internet, right? You can find that. So I'm more interested in things that mm. you wouldn't know or wouldn't know the backstories of, uh, you know, the, the evolution and the history and what really happened, how we got to where we are today. So that's part of it. Uh, and then the other part of it is, boy, if you look at the uh, sport, the, uh, the, the United States in the 90s, our teams were terrible. Right? They were embarrassingly bad. You know, it's not just dropping batons. It was, it was way worse than that. I mean, it's just, we were just, we were just crappy. So <laughs> at any rate, so it's it wasn't as fun to follow. You know, I think that the sport in the United States has revived itself nicely. But there was a period during the 90s when, you know, there just wasn't as many kids running track and getting developed into the sport. And there just wasn't as much of a focus on it. Uh, but I believe that the sport in the United States has, has rebounded quite nicely. Although wasn't, when was Michael Jackson, um, Michael Jackson, Martin, because that was late 90s. One more time. Who? Carl Lewis? Uh, uh, Michael Johnson. Uh, Michael, Michael Johnson, Johnson, when his. Yeah, because, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, he was he was he was a highlight, he, but he was one of um, only a few highlights in, in, in that period. Right. So, um, 
but yeah, I mean, he 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 was exciting. It just in general, I mean, particularly well, let's you know, particularly distance running in the United States. So it you know, track was not the focus. It was really about mm. road racing, you know, uh, and you know, uh, you know, ro- road road racing is you know, rock and roll, you know. Carnegie Hall is the was track and field is Carnegie Hall, you know, and it's like, you know, the, the beauty of the sport, you know, international, but, uh, you know, the, the, the sport chase changed the running distance running changed dramatically and it became more of a participation, you know, uh, mm. get your finishers medal sort of thing. And I don't know. I just, I just, I'm just not a, a fan of, but I am really a fan and I'm always learning every single day that, um, the sport in the thirties and in the forties and the fifties and, you know, and, and wow, that that evolution of the sport is really fascinating. And again, it's not just the sort of stuff you you just Google and and find it. Um, so a lot of it uh, resides in the the annals of within the uh, the track and field garage. And so when you've because um, you mentioned about how there's almost a disconnect, there's been a disconnect between the road and the track um, within American running. What what would you say has been like the the biggest influence through the different periods on um has it been sport has it been international events like the olympics or has it been like the crossover between road runners so um if i understand your question correctly the influences on road running in the united states and distance running on the united states you know obviously we had kind of a a breakthrough a couple of breakthroughs uh, I would say that the Jerry Lindgren era of 1964 was uh, a fascinating uh, period. Uh, but distance running was still just fledgling in the United States. It wasn't a participatory. Um, mm-hmm. In the 70s, we started to see road racing, you know, pick up, particularly after Frank Shorter's win and uh, the 1972 Olympic Games marathon, which is come. This is this year is the 50th anniversary of that win. And that was a, a big influencer at the right place at the right time. More and more road racings begin. Uh, and then you have uh, competitions like the New York City Marathon really putting mm-hmm. running on the, on the on national TV along with the Boston Marathon, all of those things. Um, and it became more participatory, uh, the, you know, the uprising of the athletic footwear companies and, um, you know, technology improving, shoes improving. Uh, it becoming more culturally and behaviorally interesting to be running, women beginning to run, uh, you know, uh, all, all of those things, you know, enhance the, the, the natural uh, evolution of the sport. Um, the United States road racing scene in the 80s and, uh, and was extraordinary. Uh, and at some point um, it, in about 1981 or thereabouts, we had our first uh, uh, prize money races, you know, allowed prize money races. Uh, and so a lot of the track guys gravitated to the roads because they could make a living on the roads, uh, mm. you know, earning prize money. Um, so that kind, that's kind of the, the things that kind of generated the sport. Over time, the, you know, we became more about health and fitness and participation. And, you know, and then all the charity events began and the charity events mm. brought in lots of dollars for the organizers of races. You know, and so the focus became on participation versus competition. So um, I think that's kind of it in a nutshell. And, and when you've kind of looked back on the memorabilia, um, can you tell from the, the programs and from their style, the content, 
do you get a sense of, of when a sport is thriving and when there is money and excitement and real engagement compared to other years where it's less so? Um, well, you know, it's, it's one of the neat things is uh, uh, if you go back into the, the history of the sport, it was, um, you know, it wasn't just uh, the, the focus wasn't just every four years during an Olympiad. Uh, it was, you know, it was the big sport or one of the key sports in, in America, right, was was track and field, uh, USA versus the USSR during the Cold War, those sorts of things. And if you look at it, if you uh, uh, look at the number of attendees at a track meet, I mean, it, it wasn't uncommon to have, you know, 30,000 people pack a stadium to watch track and field in the in the 60s. You know, it's like it's crazy numbers. You know, and that's today the same the same meet m might get, you know, 6,000. So but there's you know, there's just people have different, you know, and more and varied uh, opportunities and options. Uh, professional sports in the United States, obviously, you know, take the cake, NFL, you know, basketball, baseball, you know, the, the big ones. And, uh, you know, people, you know, the layperson versus the true track fan only only comes around and comes out of their shell every <laughs> every four years or so. So. And do you, do you think there could have been a way if the sport had been professionalized earlier, if the meets had been changed to be better for audiences and television? Do you think the path into away from towards larger continued or think running and track and field just through the nature of of it as it, as a watching uh, would never be huge. Well, um, if there was an entity like the NFL or MLB that you know really uh, had the, the you know the vision of making that happen, and if you incorporated betting and that sort of thing, I, I, I imagine mm. you know uh, you know track and field could be uh, as, uh, as as vivid. There's so many different facets to the sport. Uh, there's got to be an event that just about any fan can uh, wrap their head around. You know, maybe, maybe it's the high jump, maybe, you know, maybe it's the, uh, uh, you know, the, the sprints and, you know, maybe it's the pole vault, you know. <clears throat> Women's pole vaulting is really fun to watch. <laughs> okay, I'll take your word on that one. Um, and and in terms of the, um, in terms of the phase of the sports, do, do you get a sense of, who who was this for? Who was generally part, um, taking part in the events? Was it a, a certain breed of individual? You know, was it open to all? What was it really celebrated within the community? Um, it, historically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, historically in the United States, um, and I believe in the UK as well, it was really, uh, there were club sports, you know, mm. and it was, there were team sports. Uh, and it was, you know, uh, you know, the Birchfield Harriers versus, you know, um, the Blackheath Harriers. You know, that, I mean, it was, the, it was really a team thing. It really mattered, you know. Uh, it was pride, you know, and it's a sporting pride. Uh, and, and that's really kind of, you know, the, the case, the, the, you know, whole, the club systems back then were really, <clears throat> were, were really what was going on there. That was, that was uh, uh, the, you know, the real fabric of, uh, of, of the sport was uh, the whole club system. And is that the same in America? Because we we still have this in the UK. We still do have lots of strong clubs. And actually, 
there's a, a huge amount of participation. There's leagues, there's you know, national championships, but we've always we've always kind of from across the pond noticed that participation in running hits a peak at track at university, and then people almost find their own journeys. And it, it, America didn't, doesn't seem to have that club structure that we do in the UK. Has yeah. that changed? Like, have clubs closed or have they just waned? No, I think that what happens to uh, collegiate runners is they, they find themselves, you know, they're, they're no longer part of that, you know, uh, college team. Uh, they don't have that support system uh, and it's time to go out and make a living, you know, and mm. uh, it's you know, pretty difficult to make a living. Very few people make a living in the sport of, uh, of track and field, you know, so uh, and, uh, you know, just priorities change. I think it's cultural, it's behavioral, it's, it's, it's all of the above. Uh, so uh, there's not a, a firm system in place to, to support, you know, the post-collegiate athlete. Now, um, you've mentioned that you've, you've gone on auction houses, you, you find the, 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 the programs and things in, in various areas. Like, who, who are the type of people who've got these still? Who've got these old um, programs? Who've got the ones you're missing, the ones you're wanting? Like, where do you tend to find them? So uh, oftentimes, you know, when um, uh, uh, it's family members, you know, when their dad or their great granddad passes and they, they, you know, they're going through the the stuff that got left behind, you know, they'll mm. they'll sell them at auction or that sort of a thing. So uh, that that that's one way. Um, and that that seems to be one of the the, the most um, uh, uh, common ways to that these things come about. You know, when 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 the younger generation realizes that oh, well, this is pretty neat, but it doesn't mean anything to me. Maybe it'll mean somebody something to somebody else. So, uh, and um, there's a lot of junk available out there. You know, uh, so it takes you know a lot of uh, understanding of what's what and what value is and what, you know, what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. I see a lot of silly offering prices on a lot of junk. So it's really for me because I've got pretty much everything that I would really, uh, uh, covet. Uh, I'm only really missing the only thing I'll tell you this, the, the only one thing that I don't have that I would really, I would die to get my hands on is the 1935 big 10 track and field championships. Uh, it was at the uh, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and it was the day that within 45 minutes, Jesse Owens slaughtered a handful of world records, just like that, boom, boom, boom. Every few minutes, he's breaking a world record. It was the most unbelievable day in the history of track and field or the, the most significant hour in the history of track and field, and that's really the only key piece that I do not have. If you're listening out there and you have that, I'll uh, I'll uh, compensate you handsomely. <laughs> and and do you believe it does exist still? Believe it exists. I've seen a photograph of it. Uh, I know that the University of Michigan has one. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I I know it exists out there, but uh, I've never actually had my hands on on one, uh, and I don't know of anybody that has one, but. You know, I'm 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 sure it exists. It's probably in somebody's attic. You know, uh, who's who's you know great granddad ran in you know in in that meet. It's it's there. They just don't they just don't know it. You know, so uh, if you're listening, and, and what, 
Um, and what is something like that worth? <laughs> what, what is something like that worth then these days? But are there lots of yeah. other competitive um, collectors who would bid against you? Or? Well, I, I believe that, um, you know, there there would be a demand for it uh, if with proper exposure. Um, and um, uh, something like that would probably a it's, it's not terribly uh, uh, pricey. Most of the items in track and field aren't. Um, but, you know, it's probably worth, you know, uh, two thousand uh, dollars or something like that. You know, uh, um, it's, you know it's not not everybody wants to pay two thousand dollars or thereabouts for, you know, for a, for a magazine, yeah. right? A program, meat program, right? Uh, but it's a function of supply and demand. You know, the the uh, the supply is clearly uh, limited, uh, mm-hmm. and the demand is probably somewhat limited too. There's not that many people that are track chucklehead knuckleheads like myself, right? Because <laughs> what's the most you've spent on something? Uh, you know, I've I've got a few hundred thousand dollars into uh, my collection. Uh, I, the value of it, if I sold it piece by piece, is probably about you know five or six times that. Um, uh, but nothing is particularly. So the things that are really valuable are the things that sell, you know, at the uh, at the Christie's auctions or the Sotheby's auctions, and they tend to be things like you know one of the uh, one of the stopwatches from uh, Roger Bannister's uh, sub four minute mile or mm. his singlet, you know, it's something that's extraordinary in that regard. And, and and those sorts of things can, you know, can fetch, you know, quite quite a bit more. Uh, certain shoes, you know, have caught, you know, you know, garnered quite a bit. I believe that the highest uh, athletic footwear shoe sale was the uh, the waffles, the the moon shoes, the very first uh, Nike yeah, moon shoes waffles right. that yeah. they had for promotional athletes at the 1972 Olympic trials. And I believe uh, the most uh, expensive one sold for uh uh, in the vicinity of four hundred thousand dollars at the at the Sotheby's auction. And and what which because we've we've talked about the programs, but whatever kind of memorabilia do do you have? And and what is it that piques your interest? Like what would you what would make you want something? Or what would make me what would make me want uh, to add something is that does it have a does it help tell a historical uh, uh, piece of the sport that I don't. Uh, already have you know that filled in and plugged in. So, mm. so in the end, you want to have uh, I am you. I want to be able to take this entire archives, this entire collection, and have it mm. be complete enough that a university or some other entity is willing to uh, house it and use it uh, ongoing for uh, the future education uh, of the history of the sport. So if it fits within the chronological timeline uh, and tells a story, that that's interesting to me. The second thing that's interesting to me is the art, the uh, the art of track and field. I really dig the old 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, you know, artistic component to say meat programs and that sort of a thing. And then thirdly, items that are just extraordinarily unique. Uh, like for instance, I have. Uh, a telegram uh, that uh, Steve Prefontaine sent to the Helsinki meat director. Now, there's only one of those in the world, right? You know, Steve mm-hmm. only sent one, Prefontaine sent one telegram to the meat director. It came to me from uh, the, Hel- the, the Helsinki meat director uh, many years thereafter. So unique pieces like that. 
were Bill Bowerman, who was no, a notorious non-recruiter. He did not recruit athletes. He didn't want to bow down to athletes. But I have the hand typewritten letter that he sent to recruit Jerry Lingren in 1964. And and he didn't get him. But there's only that letter. There's only one of those letters. And it's, <laughs> it's within the, the archives here. And cool. what would you what would you say are the biggest stories then that, that that they tell that we wouldn't necessarily know about? Well, you know, so stories that I'm interested in telling is I'm I'm very fascinated and and in in the midst of writing an in depth uh, uh, story on uh, the history of uh, African American uh, distance running and in particular African Americans uh, in the one mile run. Um, so in the 20s and 30s, it was, a, you know, more of a novelty for African-American run, runners to run the mile, you know. But there's actually some pretty cool history there. And so uh, I was um, around during the period and very active during the period uh, when there was a little bit of a, a race to be, you know, how there was the, the race to be the first sub four minute miler. Right. And you had Landy and you had Bannister. And you had West Santee. There's a great book on it by Neil Bascom called The Perfect Mile. If you haven't read it, got to read it. It's fantastic. It's actually literature. It's extraordinary. So that same story, or not, not the same story, not to that same uh, degree, uh, was taking place mm. for um, the African-American community uh, in track and field in the early 70s to see who could be the first African-American sub-four-minute miler. And that's a story that... Uh, really resonated with me then and does today and is fascinating and uh, the uh, the evolution of that is uh, is one of those kind of cultural history uh, storytelling uh, elements that that I, I look forward to uh, sharing with uh, the rest of uh, the track fan community and who was the first um, african-american sub four <laughs> it depends on who you ask <laughs> So uh, it was uh, Reggie McAfee uh, in 1973 at the ACC Championships, I believe, uh, from the University of North Carolina. Although um, although um, Byron Dice, who ran for the Florida Track Club in the United States, is also uh, sometimes credited with that first sub four minute mile, but sometimes is discredited because his nationality by birth was he is from Jamaica and he represented Jamaica so he was not necessarily considered the first African American uh sub four minute mile so there's a little mm -hmm. controversy there I embraced them both uh and uh and so that that's kind of part of the story you know it, it is exactly that um uh, but it, it it's fascinating and there was a lot of very almost and uh and a lot of guys that you wouldn't have wouldn't have heard of uh and uh, at any rate, it's it, it's a rich uh, story uh, that needs to be told. And and do you do you have anything from the the Jesse Owen uh, Olympics in Germany? I do. Yeah, I have some very interesting uh, pieces from the 1936 Olympics. Um, one of the coolest pieces I have is the meat program uh, from the 1936 Olympic trials. Uh, which is, you know, where Jesse Owens got selected to represent the United States. But he wasn't the only one in those Olympic Games. There was also mm. Louis Zamperini made that Olympic team. And Louis Zamperini is the, the one, the book by Lauren Hellebrand about, called Unbroken. Uh, I've had the privilege of meeting Louis Zamperini 
well before people, he was more commonplace since that book. Uh, and I've also had the pleasure, distinct pleasure of meeting Jesse Owens on a couple of occasions. But that 1936 uh, Olympic trials uh, meet was really cool. The, the one that I have is in pristine condition. Uh, it's got handwritten results in it. They're handwritten in pencil, but they're still very legible. Pretty cool. The art is <laughs> dynamic. The cover art is dynamic. And it was held at Randall's Island in New York City. And it was the opening of the Randall's Island. It was the first, it was the grand opening of uh, Randall's Island and simultaneously, and the way you get there, is the Triborough Bridge. So it was a combined grand opening of the Triborough Bridge, Randall's Island, and the 1936 Olympic Track and Field Trials. Ooh, call, talk about a trifecta. <laughs> 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 and, and if you could have been, you've mentioned the um, already Jesse Owens when he smashed all those records in a short period. But which which of all the events do you wish you'd have been at? At the 1936 Olympic Games? No, for from all of the events that you've collected memorabilia for. Which would I? What which of all the things that I have? What 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 I would like to have been at? Uh, is that what the question is? Yes, yes, that's right. Man, wow, where do you begin? It's like asking you who's your favorite kid, right? You know, it's like, oh man. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I would probably say, if I had to say anything, one of the most iconic races uh, in American track and field uh, would be, and, and a number that resonates with American track and field fans to this day, particularly of a certain age, was in 1967, at the AAU National Track and Field Championships in Bakersfield when Jim Ryan ran a solo three minutes, 51.1 seconds on cinders. Uh, it was the world record, but it was just such a remarkable world record. And, and again, he won by such a landslide. It was, it was you know, mind boggling. So perhaps that, or perhaps in 1964, the United States versus Russia meet, when uh, the storybook uh, legend, 17-year-old uh, Jerry Lingren, a little high school kid, uh, you know, in the height of the Cold War, beats the Russians at, at, at uh, the 10,000 meters. It was, it was like, you can't believe that that actually happened. Um, Robert F. Kennedy was in the stands that actually made him cry. <laughs> okay. It was so amazing. So those, those are a couple of the events that I wish I had been at, aside from, of course, you know, in May of 1954, when uh, Roger Bannister uh, ran his sub four minute mile at uh, Ifley Road track, which I've had the great pleasure of visiting, mm. which is extraordinary. Everybody needs to go to Oxford and, and, and check that out. Oh, man. Uh, ex extraordinary experience right there. <laughs> yeah, it's still, it's still used for, um, for qualifiers for the, the schools and things like that. And the people that you've you've kind of looked at the performances was the best for their time. Um, if you asked me a question, I didn't quite hear it. We broke up also, a little bit. Of who, who would you say out of all the performances you've seen was was the best person for their time? Uh, wow. Um, who I've actually seen, I've witnessed quite quite a bit of. Uh, oh no, not actually. Sorry, just just from reading all the from all the memorabilia, from looking through. Uh, who who they actually well, had to say this was the the best athlete. Oh wow, you know it's kind of really uh, hard to you know put a finger on on that. 
But uh, if you if you uh, look at you know, so the IAAF or now the mm. you know World Athletics, they have a a, a system of uh, assigning points to performances uh, at, at every distance, at every height, at every uh, you know um, time in every single discipline in track and field. And the the highest point score, uh, so thereby arguably the most extraordinary performer is uh, Jan Zalesny's world record in the javelin. So I, I didn't get to see that. Uh, I did get I did see him compete, but I didn't see that world record. At any rate, that yeah. that's the highest scoring uh, ahead of their time. There, well, there's you know been been quite a few people uh, ahead of their time. Um, you know, and arguably, I mean, you know, Jesse Owens, of course, would be be one of those. I mean, he was just mm. was so head and shoulders uh, above the rest at such a wide variety of of disciplines. Um, I happen to be a fan of the decathlon, um, you know, and so anybody is the world record in the decathlon. They refer to them as the world's greatest athlete and hard to argue with that. I mean, they're just what an extraordinary event. I've had the good fortune of being coached um, uh twice by two of the foremost uh, decathlon uh, experts in the world. My collegiate coach was Harry Mara, and Harry uh, went on to, uh, you know, while, while I was a 10,000-meter runner, and he didn't necessarily, you know, uh, you know, know that event as well as uh, some mm-hmm. others. He ended up becoming Ashton Eaton's uh, uh, coach in the, in the decathlon. So my exposure to the decathlon is, is really – it's. You know, most most distance runners are not thinking decathlon in them when they're thinking <laughs> they're abandoned in the sport. But I just think it's fascinating. Wow, yeah. how can you do all of those events and do them all well and do them over two days? And so that the, those are kind of who, who what I think are the 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 the, the events and the athletes that are you know way high up there and they're not necessarily you know uh, they're not necessarily you know, you know t- tip of your tongue uh, track and field mm. athletes. And, and who would you would you who would you want that you think people underappreciate and people don't know of who hasn't quite got the the fame of like a, a Prefontaine or, um, or or similar athletes you know Jesse Owen is there someone out there who really smashed apart their sport or their their discipline but just have never been heralded for it. Um. You know, most of most everybody that that has really accomplished, you know, tremendously has has, has been appreciated for the sport. But uh, um, you know, uh, guys like Steve Ovet, I mean, you know, um, you know, I, I, you know, he was he was extraordinary at so many different disciplines, right? You know, from uh, you, do you know he was a long jumper initially, right? He was a standout long jumper, standout during <laughs> your competition, long jumper. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, you know, he would run, he could run cross country. He was, you know, top notch cross country runner. He could run all the way up to the half marathon. So, uh, you know, and, and I think he was kind of like, you know, the, the bad cop and the good cop, bad cop between he and Seb Cove. And, uh, I don't know that he is quite as appreciated as, as maybe Seb. Um, so, uh, just off the top yeah. of my head, let me, let, let, let me throw out Steve Ovet. <laughs> And um, and then you've mentioned that you'd, you'd ideally like the whole collection to be given to a museum, something similar. Uh, how how big now is this collection? And and do you actually have somewhere in mind that you, you think would be able to take it? 
Yeah, good question. Uh, so uh, it is absolute uh, that I will be gifting, uh, giving this collection to an entity like that. Um, it's in excess of 4,000 pieces. Um, and um, I've met with a couple of different entities uh, in uh, New York City and in Los Angeles and in Oregon. And uh, so, um, you know, have not been able to come to terms with uh, any of them uh, yet, uh, but uh, the clock is ticking and, uh, you know, so uh, we, we shall see. Uh, one entity, which will go un unnamed, was very anxious to accept it. Uh, they, they said what they would do, and they were so excited to say what they would do, would be that they would uh, digitize the entire thing. And I said, well, then what would you do with the hard copies? He said, oh, well, we'd destroy them. And I said, thank you very much. And that meeting wow. ended. Exactly. Uh, one other entity, which will go unnamed, uh, a, a famous university, said, yes, Mr. Finelli, we, we love your uh, collection. Um, uh, we'll accept it uh, for a donation of $100,000, meaning that I give them $100,000. And that I pay them $10,000 a year, every year into perpetuity to manage the collection. I said, thank you very much for the meeting. So yeah, that's, uh, so it, it's, it's, it's not as easy to give away as you think it is. And I don't wanna just give it away, um, you know, uh, and I'm not looking for any yeah. compensation, but I want it, I absolutely positively want it to be used for the continuation of the history and research on the sport uh, of, of running track and field athletics. And, and out of interest, do you think they were just savvy and, and trying to get money out of you, or do you think they underappreciated the value of what it was and, and didn't really buy into its its purpose and its ability to kind of draw people in and inspire? I just think that they lacked the passion for the, su the subject matter, you know, and they're more ad administrators, you know, rather than, you know, somebody who's uh, uh, actively engaged and wanting to uh perpetuate the sport so and understood that's cool and you think someone like a nike or that would potentially look to create a museum linked to this because that you know it's great for them it's uh ties them with with the history as well um would, would you go for a brand also uh yeah if they were going to use it properly for sure uh i know that uh, nike demonstrated interest in a couple of uh specific pieces but to mm. me, if I pull away the pieces, then it loses mm. the value of, uh, of the whole. And so I'm not really willing to just part with pieces of it and then, you know, take away from the, the you know, the, the real guts of uh, the whole package. I would like to see it, you know, mm. all go to one place. Yeah. And would you, would you like to ultimately have someone take on your legacy who took over? from the years in which you finished and then continued this as a, an archive going forward? So I would say that my responsibility in the sport today, I've worn an awful lot of hats. I've you know mm -hmm. done so many different things and been responsible for so many different facets of the sport. Uh, but my uh, calling and my passion today and my responsibility to the sport is being able to tell uh, on a regular basis the background and history of the sport. Uh, and particularly the backstories, and I do that on a daily basis. I use the the, the vehicle I use because it's easy mm -hmm. for me to do so. Uh, is is uh, my Facebook page, uh, 
and I write history on a daily basis and share it. Uh, and um, and I have a really great following that includes a lot of the athletes that were actually, you know, the the players, you know, the the, <laughs> the ones that you know that I'm writing about participate yeah. in the dialogue, which is really cool. And from them, we get the real story, what's going on. Mm. So that's a really nice uh, thing. And so, um, and, and to that end, uh, my point is that, that that is my current responsibility. And along those lines, I'm arguably the youngest of, this, of the key historians of the history of the sport in America. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I, again, I'm 66 in a couple of weeks. And I'm the youngest guy, so I'm I'm trying to actively uh, find uh, somebody to you know kind of step up, you know, because you know the <laughs> the key guys aren't going to be here, you know, forever. The the, yeah. the the handful of key guys are in their you know in their 80s and 70s at the moment, and you know I'm the kid, I'm I'm the kid, you know, so wow, I'm the kid. So <laughs> uh, I I I have uh, one. Uh, young gentleman in particular that I'm, I, ha I have in mind that I'm kind of grooming to pick up the slack and uh, we'll see. Yeah. You know, these kind of things, they, you know, yeah, they, they, you have to just believe that they're going to evolve uh, organically and, you know, the right mm -hmm. thing is going to happen. You just have that picture of that positive end result in mind and you don't know how it's going to get there. It's like the great German philosopher Goethe, right? He said that boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. You don't know how you're going to get from point A to point B, but you make the decision. You're going to you have this end result, and you just throw everything to the wind. And you know what? The pieces of the puzzle. Well, you just have to believe that they're going to land where they're supposed to, to land. That and the fact that if you don't have a target, how can you hit a bullseye, right? So I have a target, <laughs> and you know we'll 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 let it unfold organically. You know you can you can only create and force so much, right? And uh, last question, you've, you've mentioned your wife a few times. Uh, what's her view on the collection and your dedication to oh, it? Oh, she, she's such a sweetheart. She's she's the most patient. Uh, you know, her name is Renee. Renee, I call her Saint Renee because <laughs> she puts up with me. But you will notice <laughs> there is not one item of track and field history within the actual confines of our residence. None. Zero. You will not find a piece. Of, you would You would have no idea. That is, of course, until you enter the track and field garage. So at any rate, uh, it's not actually a garage. We have cars in our garage. And like everybody has cars and their athletic equipment, and your golf clubs. and that's, uh, But I have a separate building uh, on my, my property that is uh, fully and completely, it's, uh, you know, the, the track and field uh, man cave sort, sort of thing. So uh, funny thing about my wife, uh, I'm, you know, a needle in a haystack. I mean, we're just... Uh, uh, you know, kindred spirits. And um, uh, June uh, 7th, we will be married for 25 years, which is pretty cool. Um, and in true track nerd fashion, you'll appreciate this. We met at the most famous running bar ever in the history of, uh, of maybe of the world called the Elliott Lounge. Not only did we meet at the Elliott Lounge, which the, was, the, you know, the, the Boston, you know, running yeah. bar that you know, was like cheers for, for running. But it was during the 1996 Boston Marathon, and that was the 100th annual Boston Marathon. If you told me, you know, 26 years ago that I'd meet my wife in a bar, first of all, and in the famous Elliott Lounge, 
And at the 100th annual Boston Marathon, you know, I, 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 I think you were nuts. But, you know, <laughs> such is the life of the track nerd. <laughs> Hey, and this, it makes it easier to remember your anniversary and various things as well, which is good. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for your interest in the sport and for documenting so much of it for future generations. And, and, and you mentioned your Facebook page if people want to understand more about the history of the pieces. And, and what, what what is the address of that? Um, well, I, it just, you know, if you look up Mike Finelli, uh, I'm like the only Mike Finelli that I know of. And uh, it... Uh, I'm, I'm looking at it on my PC as we speak, but I guess I'm facebook.com backslash Mike Finelli. I got my own name. So how do I do that? Oh, Mike.Finelli. So, yeah. And uh, so friend me on Facebook and I'm um, glad to add you. And uh, you can chime in and join join the uh, the track nut uh, masses. <laughs> and let's see if we can get that Jesse Owen program to uh, complete this collection. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's the, there, there's a finder's fee. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thanks. So I can, and good luck there ensuring its its future um, security. Thank thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Admit I was a clone to be messing around, but that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Come back, yes, and give me one more try. Cause I love like this, should I never ever die? Come back, fuck you, buddy.